Good evening. I'm Carla Hayden, CEO of the Enid Pratt Free Library, and welcome to, as you can tell, a very, very special edition of our Writers Live series. We are so excited that you could be here with us tonight to listen to our wonderful guest, Mr. Ralph Nader. Oh, you want to clap some more? Oh, clap some more. Now, some of you may know that our Writers Live series and the Pratt Library's other lecture series are dedicated to presenting a wide range of ideas and information to the public. And we want to create a forum for spirited discussion. And we offer books and now downloadable books and authors because we believe that public libraries are for everyone. And to do this, the Pratt Library and other public libraries across the nation present a wide spectrum of social and political thoughts so people can choose for themselves what they want to listen to, what they want to read, or what they want to view. And so we are so pleased that you are here tonight. It is my privilege to introduce our special guest tonight. And um, from the response, I could tell you might not need to hear much more about him, but I'm going to say it because we are honored that he's here tonight, because he is a consumer advocate, a lawyer, an author, and has been named by Time Magazine as one of the 100 most influential Americans in the 20th century. I say the 21st, too. His career as a public advocate started at the age of 31, and probably before, with an article titled, The Safe Car You Can't Buy, which along with his subsequent book, Unsafe at Any Speed, documented safety defects in U.S. cars and criticized the automobile industry's safety practices. His research on auto safety and his lobbying in Washington helped push Congress to pass the 1960. 1966 National Traffic and Motor Vehicle Safety Act, and he has since then penned several best-selling books, and tonight we're honored to have him here at the Pratt to discuss his new book, Only the Super Rich Can Save Us. I know you're anxious to hear from him. You'll be able to buy copies of the book. Ivy Bookstore is selling them right afterwards, and Mr. Nader will sign them. So please welcome Mr. Ralph Nader. Thank you. Thank you very much, Dr. Haynes. It's, it's really wonderful to be in a free public library. And I grew up in a, a small town where uh, a Miss Beardsley gave $10,000 in 1900 to build a library. The town had 10,000 people. And it was right around the corner, and I spent a lot of hours there as a little boy. So I uh, am a great fan of... Uh, Libraries. We started a, ten, almost 10 years ago the D.C. Library Renaissance Project, which is a citizen group, to try to uh, turn, turn around the library system in D.C., which is, at that time was, was rated the worst uh, maintained and, uh, uh, library system of any major city. Since then, they've some new ones, and things are, are turning around because the citizens are putting a little effort in. Now, if you're like me, uh, you, you, you are wondering what's happened to our country uh, in the last few decades. 
It doesn't seem to be able to solve any problems. It doesn't seem to be able to generate the kind of leaders that know what to do other than use brute force and have the most powerful military in the history of the world. And uh, we all remember, uh, without idealizing our past, uh, that that we, we used to handle uh, issues in a more systematic way. You remember Benjamin Franklin uh, thought up of the volunteer fire departments, which at that time fire was the major threat besides pestilence to cities, and the uh, public library system. And uh, we had the land-grant colleges and started all kinds of universities for uh, at low, uh, low tuition. Uh, we... Uh, we took on uh, issues and uh, and confronted them. Uh, we didn't delay them so much. Uh, compared to today, we, we seem to be paralyzed. So we're all looking for how can we turn the country around? I mean, what what are the levers? What's the spark that can get this uh, that, that can get this done? And um, obviously, it's not the lack of information, is it? The information is at our fingertips. It's not the lack of wonderful documentaries and books and essays uh, detailing what our problems are, what our injustices are, what the deprivations are, and what the solutions are. And we have far more solutions on our shelf that we don't apply uh, to the problems we have on the ground. If If we say, what about energy? What about energy? Two simple approaches. One is efficiency and the other is renewable. Had we started that decades ago, we wouldn't be dealing with nuclear power or be chattel to the uh, climate-changing uh, uh, corporate abuse of, uh, of the fo- fossil fuel industry. Uh, we don't know how to build mass transit. Of course we know how to build mass transit, but for many decades, the highway lobby took over, and General Motors and an oil company and a tire company uh, were convicted of a conspiracy in violation of the antitrust laws in Chicago right after World War II because starting in the 30s, they bought up most of the trolley systems of most of the cities, ripped out the tracks, and pushed for more public funding of highways because the trolleys were the major competitors of the auto companies. And so if we believe uh, these precepts, that we have a lot of solutions. They're not perfect, but they're a lot better than what they replace. If we believe that a rich country should abolish poverty, that a rich country should have universal health insurance, that a rich country should have a living wage, all of which have been accomplished in Western Europe and to a significant degree in Canada. Uh, And Western Europe was devastated after World War II and pulled itself up to provide a higher quality of life for more people, uh, tuition-free education, decent public transit, free daycare, tax-supported, of course, tax-supported daycare, uh, uh, maternal leave, family sick leave, I mean, look at now. We read stories like in the Baltimore Sun, Washington Post. You can't believe what people are going through until you read those stories. But when you have a a government that has 50% of its non-insurance budget go to the military when there's no more Soviet Union, you you sort of figure that 
President Eisenhower had a good point in his farewell address when he warned us about the military-industrial complex. So without belaboring any more of all these situations, the question I asked myself was, <clears throat> nonfiction doesn't work anymore. Uh, to write books, we've never had better muckraking books. We, we, almost every week, books come out exposing the coal industry and the, the copper industry and the, the oil industry and the banks and the insurance companies. We have never had better documentaries. This is the golden age of documentaries. Look at the one that won the Academy Award, uh, Inside Job. And he got up in front of uh, a billion people around the world, and he said, not one of these Wall Streeters has been sent to jail yet. So this is why I resorted to my first fiction book. And only the super-rich can save us. Notice it's in quotes. Uh, is my first fiction book. And it's designed <clears throat> to answer the question, what is needed <clears throat> to mobilize the people in this country around widely supported redirections, that is, it reflects, they reflect the public sentiment. Lincoln once said, with the public sentiment, you can do anything, and without the public sentiment, good luck. Um, and so I developed this concept, and I have to give you three little short vignettes uh, in order to prepare the psychological context in this awesome hall for the story uh, that's in this book. When Isaac Newton, the great physicist of many, many decades ago, was once asked, Mr. Newton, why are you so much more brilliant than other scientists? And Mr. Newton re re responded, I'm not so much brilliant than other scientists. I just can hold a problem in my mind and concentrate on it longer than most of the others. Concentration. Decades forward. Einstein once said, to be sure it was an understatement, quote, I don't have any special gifts. I just have a passionate curiosity. Curiosity. Robert Blake, going back some decades, the artist and poet in Britain, was once asked at a social gathering, Mr. Blake, where do you reside? And Mr. Blake replied, I reside in my imagination. So you have concentration, curiosity, imagination. Something the younger generation needs to blend together. And that's the kind of response to a book like this that will get the most out of this book, that will affect you the most, that will get you to look at the, the, the very rich here in Baltimore in a completely different imaginative and creative way in terms of what they can do with their money, that will move charity to justice Yes, we do need soup kitchens while people are hungry, and 13 million children go to bed hungry every night in this country. But we also need justice to remove the causes of that hunger in a very, very rich country overall. 
So moving from charity to justice is the theme in this book. And here's the story. It's uh, around Katrina time. And Warren Buffett, and I use real-life mega-millionaire billionaires in fictional roles. Warren Buffett sitting in his living room in Omaha, Nebraska, watching the fleeing uh, families uh, from Katrina. And they were fleeing north uh, on the highway. And at night, they had no water, no food. They were camping out, uh, extended families. And day one, he watched this. Day two, day three. And day four, he couldn't take it anymore. Because you remember FEMA messed up and everybody was in chaos. And so he hired a whole bunch of supplies and put them in trucks, bring, brought some public health workers, and he went down himself and he starts distributing all of these necessities of life, food, medicine, tents, uh, etc., to these families. And the word up the road was some rich guy from Nebraska is, is helping us out at last. And he gets to a real large extended family. There's a little campfire on the side of the road. And he starts helping everybody with all his uh, assistance. And a grandmother grabs him by the elbows. And she cries out to him, only the super rich can help us. And that haunts him all the way back to Omaha. Only the super rich. What did she mean by that? And the real-life Buffett planned to leave all his money to a foundation in his name after he died. He didn't plan to do any philanthropy. The fictional Buffett suddenly is jolted by this post-Katrina experience and gets 16 other very rich people that he very carefully selects for different uh, experiences, different contacts in the political economy, and, and different love, kinds of influence. And he takes them to a mountaintop hotel in Maui, Hawaii, in January 2006, to plan the campaign. The whole book takes place in 2006. To be sure, it's a long book, but it was longer in hardback. Why was it so long? Because once the premise of some older, enlightened, super-rich, and it, all those are very key, older, 70s, 80s, 90s, because they have a different, different perspective on life. They, they think about posterity. They think about results more. They're not so distracted, just piling up more money. And these 17 do have enlightened backgrounds in a number of ways. They were selected by me for that reason. And they had to be very rich. Uh, what happened at this hotel, and the reason why the book is so long, is that once you accept the premise, one, they're going to pour really big money into mobilizing the people of this country. Two, they're going to stay with it day by day. The total concentration. Three, they know that it can only be done top-down, bottom-up. That all they can do is provide the infrastructure, the, the access to the mass media, uh, the wherewithal. And they were instructed that this was not the first time this happened, but it was going to be the most comprehensive 
accelerated redirection of our country in our history because of the massive resources they're going to put to bear. They had at their peak 400 recruiters just to find the people in the communities and neighborhoods, the leaders, the lecturers, um, the mobilizers, the campaigners. <clears throat> and they, were, they learned that uh, there were more than a few proper rich Bostonians who funded the abolition movement against slavery in the 19th century. There were more than a few rich families who funded the civil rights movement in the 50s and early 60s before it got its own legs. There are more than a few rich families who launched the effort to establish our national parks and our libraries. So on a smaller scale, there was this kind of philanthropy. You can call it charity, but it was really justice. It, in other words, it confronted raw, unjust power or raw indifference and built the power to overcome it. George Soros, who's in this book, uh, calls his philanthropy political philanthropy. Well, that, that could mean giving a lot of money to a political party, which he has done, along with the Cook brothers. <clears throat> but when I say moving from charity to justice, I mean doing it with concentration, imagination, curiosity, all in a blend. So we have to break through our paradigms and our conventional thinking and basically develop such a sense of urgency as to what kind of country and world we're going to leave to our descendants that we become more creative, we become more imaginative, we become more curious. So they're in this mountaintop hotel in January in Maui. Nobody knows they're there. It's all very, very private, very secret. And they, they involve people like uh, Yoko Ono, Paul Newman, uh, William Gates Sr., uh, the great trial lawyer uh, Joe Jamail, uh, Bernard Rappaport, who's a, a lefty insurance entrepreneur uh, from Texas, uh, one of the founders of the computer industry, uh, Max Pilevsky, uh, Leonard Riggio, uh, the owner of Barnes & Noble, who has a, a radical side to him, uh, and uh, uh, Barry Diller. Uh, Barry Diller uh, is a media uh, executive. He, he knows how to buy radio and TV stations. And so they moved out in this concept, and they said, uh, we're, we're not going to disclose that we're all in it together. We are all going to go out back home in January and do our own chosen thing, just to get, to get us in the swell of things, to get us used to criticism, to get us used to dealing with the media. And so each one of them went out to do something. Uh, Joe Jamail went out and he, he poured millions of dollars into establishing small claims clinics with law schools all over the country. So when people are ripped off by credit card companies or landlords or telephone companies or banks, uh, they can go and have free uh, adjudication. You don't need lawyers in a, uh, a small claims court. For this, he was roundly denounced repeatedly by the Wall Street Journal for fomenting a flood of litigation, to which he said, only a flood? 
And then he gave more evidence. <clears throat> so each one of them went out. Barry Diller, his job was to buy a, a, a TV and radio network. No problem. He has law firms. He started buying up TV stations and radio stations, leverage buyouts. Within a few months, they had in place a complete uh, system where they didn't have to rely on the commercial media. And how they did that was fairly intricate. <clears throat> Bernard Rappaport had this idea of filling the afternoons of elementary school students uh, with civic experiences and civic skill training. So they connected with the community. They, they knew that there was there actual nature there, that there were town halls there, that there were garages there, that there were factories there, there were office buildings, there were supermarkets. Uh, that turned out, by the way, to be the most difficult of all of their efforts, and not because of lack of money. Now, month after month, they planned this. Uh, the press couldn't figure out what was going on. Uh, they didn't know they were all working together, so they, they would just talk about their individual exploits, they started a clean elections party. Uh, they started a People's Chamber of Commerce. Ted Turner's uh, was one of them, and his big, uh, his big project was the most flamboyant, sexist solar festivals you can imagine. Why was it sexist? It was sexist because he likes beautiful young women in real life. And he realized they're just having solar festivals to slam against nuclear and fossil and really accelerate the conversion to photovoltaics, uh, solar thermal, all kinds of solar energy, wind power, etc. He had to be a little outrageous. So he, he brought in these beautiful young women, put them in various circus-type positions and demonstrations, and he got slammed for that. But he got a lot of publicity out of it. William Gates Sr. was enthralled with the idea of providing free legal services for as many Americans as possible who want to convert themselves, incorporate themselves. Since, you know, part of the dialogue in this book is that corporations have all the constitutional rights that real human beings have, even though they're artificial entities, except the right against self-incrimination. But they also have privileges and immunities that human beings will never have because they're artificial. They can roam the world. They can, you know, go to the Bahamas and escape taxes. They can create their own parents called holding companies for evasive purposes. So he came up with this idea. Why don't we have huge rallies, indoor arena rallies with wonderful food, Food played a great role in this book. And why don't we do that and people can incorporate themselves. So you have Susie Smith Incorporated. You know, if you can't beat them, join them, right? And learn about all the privileges and immunities of being a corporation. So this became a great educational mission. Leonard Riggio, his desire was to start mass rallies in downtown squares in cities all over the Amer America in order to signal to the powers that be that the people are coming. The whole thing was this wave that never dissipated. 
Now, it's not like Madison. They had a month or so. Now the question is, can they pull out another 100,000 people, or is it dissipating? But when you have all the money you want, you cannot believe what's possible. And I'll give you the dollar figure in terms of what, what was done and what it cost. And so he had these wonderful local speakers who never had much of a soapbox. And we all know there are some real natural neighborhood motivated, knowledgeable speakers. But they, they never could get on the evening news. Who gets on the local evening news anymore? You got 30 minutes local evening news. Nine minutes are ads. Two to three minutes are street crime, very superficially covered. Uh, one minute is artificial chit-chat between the anchors. You, you have four minutes of sports, four minutes of weather, repeated endlessly, like five weather forecasts. Like, do we really know? Do we really want to know all of that? You know, look at the investment in the meteorologists. Local citizens can't get on local TV, hardly anymore. It's the same all over the country. So he starts out with free food and free lectures in places like Fountain Square in Cincinnati or the Commons in Boston. And at first, you know, a couple hundred people, members of Congress didn't pay much attention. Then it was a couple thousand people. Gee, what's going on here? They're talking about things that really matter. They're talking about subordinating corporate power. They're talking about making corporations our servants, not our masters. They're talking about living wage, not Walmart wages for one-third of all full-time workers. They're talking about stopping tens of thousands of Americans dying because they can't afford health insurance to get treated or diagnosed. What's going on here? And it keeps getting bigger and bigger in more and more cities. What? Downtown Phoenix? People coming out? It's got to be something more than the food. So that's the kind of atmosphere. They finally go public in the middle of the year. By this time, the corporate Goliaths are wondering what is going on. And so they hire <clears throat> all kinds of people to anticipate. I mean, they, they see these tremors from the community, you know. Uh, and they know something serious is coming on, something that's never been done. They know that some rich people are behind them. Uh, and then they realize that the guy who's behind a most intricate strategy to unionize Walmart is none other than the originator of the big box store himself, Saul Price, of the Price Club, which merged with Costco. And when the heads of Walmart realized that this intricate dismantling of their union-busting cadre was masterminded by Saul Price. They went crazy. He knows everything about us. He knows our warts. He's our father. What's he doing? And then you'll see back and forth how, how Saul Price reacted. I put a lot of my experience in the book, and when you have frustrated experience, you, you have a lot of experience, not just successful experience. You see all sides. You know how to deal with discouragement and demoralization and all the intangibles. And there's a lot of dialogue in the book, and there's a lot of reality. And the reason why it's so long 
is because I don't want any reader to say, okay, we accept the super rich are behind this. We accept they're organizing communities all over the country. We accept they're putting huge bucks in. And this could happen. In other words, the detail is the reality. Now, flying back from Maui, they went back to Maui almost every month to plan. Flying back from Maui near the early fall, Buffett turns, Buffett turns to his aide and he said, you know, we're accomplishing all of this by spending $15 billion with a B. He said, you know, that's less than one-third of my net worth. That's what we have to start considering. You want to do prison reform? We've got a lot of Abu Ghraibs here. We've got a lot of vicious, cruel, recidivist-producing conditions in our prison. What about a couple hundred million dollars to organize the citizenry? You want to do tax reform, as Buffett wants in real life? He thinks he's undertaxed, and he's taxed less rate than his own secretary. What about a billion dollars to mobilize every congressional district? To have organizers in every congressional district? Networked with a lightning strike on Congress and the giant tax SKPs. You don't think a lot of work has been done? Of course a lot of work has been done about tax reform. Excellent work. It's been reported. It's been compiled. It's gathering dust. Not enough resources. Justice needs money. It needs a lot of other things, but it needs money. The response by liberals and progressives to this book was, and I found out why. They thought the concept of money behind the elaboration and growth of justice was corrupt. It was corrupting. Well, you'll see in the book how that was dealt with. You will see how power was devolved downward. But any liberal or progressive who thinks money is corrupt, corrupting of social justice causes, doesn't understand American history, doesn't understand the reality of resources. You don't go and tell people in neighborhoods and communities, many of them poor, why don't you rise up and overturn your, your oppressors and, and they, they don't have anything to deal with. They don't have any facilities for reproducing paper. They don't have transportation. They don't have experts to deal with, to represent them. They don't have litigation expenses. They can't even pull out, put on a downtown rally. So we have to get over this, what I call this inverted hubris. And if it takes the, cock, the Cook brothers to do it, maybe that's what's necessary. These are two brothers who are worth $37 billion, and they're pouring tens of millions of dollars in the next year and a half into political right-wing campaigns. How far do you think the Tea Party would have come without money, without the Fox network? And even now, because they don't represent, and I don't, I don't want to stereotype them, some of them are libertarians who are against wars and corporate welfare, but their total number, according to a survey, in terms of belonging to Tea Party chapters, was about 400,000. 
Even with all of Fox News, they couldn't pull a rally out as big as the one that citizen groups and labor pulled out in Washington a few weeks later. But they had money, and they had a media uh, giant called Fox News that promoted them every conceivable way, their schedule, their rallies, etc. So that, that, to me, is the only obstacle. The interesting thing about the liberal intelligentsia, people who you know and you've read in the Progressive Magazine, Washington Monthly, uh, op-eds, Nation Magazine, is, first of all, they hardly interact with one another compared to their right-wing counterparts. They do not read each other's books. I read Bob Kuttner's books. He doesn't read my books. I read Bill Greider's books. I think it's my enlightenment to read them, even though I share their political philosophy. You think I have all the insights? You think I I have all the ways of turning things around? Do you think I have all the historical documentation? Of course not. And so I urge you to read Chris Hedges' little book, The Death of the Liberal Class, which just came out, small book, in order to see that when it comes to the liberal progressive movement in this country, their issues are majoritarian issues. Single payer is majoritarian issue. Living wage, easily a majoritarian issue. Take rock rib conservatives who work in Walmart and ask them if they don't want to be paid 10 to 12 bucks an hour. One, the issues are majoritarian issues, even on military and foreign aggression. Number two, the liberal intelligentsia is not up to it. It's got to be rescued and bolstered and led by neighborhood initiatives. And there are quite a few neighborhood-produced initiatives uh, in, this, uh, in this book. The last thing I point out, and I don't want to give away all the ending, which is really, I think it was illustrated by a letter I got from Leslie Stahl after she read the book and read the book and read the book. That's what she said in her letter to me. It was 760 pages. It was still 450 pages smaller than Ayn Rand's book. <laughs> and, and the print is not as small, apart from the idiocy of the narrative. Um, she said, I read, and I, read, I read this book, uh, Ralph, and I found it engrossing, creative, and funny. And I said to her, Leslie, I'll take all three, given the size. So it's, it's in there. My last point is this. Because it is not a novel, very few people can write good novels. It's very intricate and very laser on character development. It is a work of political fiction. It's a work of political imagination, which means any of us who has a layer of experience in what we've done in life, whether it's social justice efforts or educational efforts or commercial efforts or promotional efforts, can write a book like this because anyone can have the imagination to write a book that answers the question, What if? What if? What if? 
How many of you have been in battles here in Baltimore and Maryland and you've lost? And you sit down and you're having coffee and looking over the results of the election or the referendum or the lawsuit. And you say, you know, if only we had more organizers on the ground. If only we could have gotten more local TV, radio, other than Mark Steiner, bless his soul. If only we could have gotten better play in the Baltimore Sun. If only we had some maybe more creative strategies. If only, if only, if only we had more money. So this book is an attempt to revive a new kind of writing that everybody can put their hand to as a short story, as an article, as a feature, as a book, or a placement on your your Facebook account, whatever. And I urge all of you to do that based on your own experience in answering the questions, what if, what if, what if. And in so doing, I guarantee you, you'll never have more fun because no one can tell you no. Do you realize how exhilarating that is? You're creating a future however defined, with your imagination and curiosity and, and, and concentration. And no one can tell you no. That's why it's so liberating. And without curiosity and imagination and concentration, how can we ever get anything done? If we don't have the imagination to envision real possibilities in our country and the world, we will forever be discouraged. We will forever be cleverly rationalizing our own futility. And we're very good at that. And the older we are, the more we can imagine, the more curious we can be, and the more concentration we can apply. Because we've lost more than younger people. We have more experience, not just from victories or advances, but from defeats. And we'll learn how to make defeat our best teacher for the future, for posterity, for this tormented world of ours, where we can't even generate clean drinking water in order to save two million children's lives a year on this planet. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. By the way, tomorrow I'm going to be at the New York Public Library, and two of the characters, Peter Lewis and Ted Turner, are going to be on the stage with me. So we finally got two of the billionaires out of the pages of the book. 
I know you're going to wonder what their reaction was, and it, they never experienced anything like this, so some of them didn't react. Uh, William, uh, Warren Buffett liked it a lot. He invited me out to have breakfast with him, and uh, I said, this may be a movie someday, and he said, who's going to play me? So, <laughs> said, Warren Beatty. <laughs> He's in the book, by the way. He has an amazing campaign for governor of California against Schwarzenegger. Two actors. I think we can start uh, with the, the, the... You can make comments, uh, free, free to have questions, comments, or announcements. If you have meetings here in Baltimore, you'd like people to go to gatherings. Thank you very much. Is, is it on? Yeah. Okay. Yes, hi. Um, I guess I'm a confused uh, independent. I voted for you. I voted for Obama. I voted for Reagan. Uh, heard Arlo Guthrie at the Jazz Fest uh, recently and sort of made me proud of some of the things that he's done. But a couple quick comments. One is I, I want to thank you for reading the books of conservatives because I think in this age of polarization, it's really important not to get too lopsided in your views because nobody has all the answers. Uh, I want to lead to just sort of one question and besides wondering how Ayn Rand is rolling over in her grave with your uh, tome that, that sounds like it's, it's the antithesis to what she wrote. But I must say that as a uh, college freshman, when I read her book, after being, you know, I guess you could say typically on the left, I was impressed. The logic, the Aristotelian thought, it was, there was a lot of things in there that were maybe not well written, but it was certainly, uh, she had some good points. Hmm. But anyway, to, to my question... Um, one of the things that can be discouraging is you see uh, when people go across political parties, Clinton and Bush going down to Haiti and getting, I believe it was $50 billion, but it was a lot of money. And my understanding is that only 3 or $4 billion has been distributed so far. So since your book deals a lot with money, do you have any idea why the other $45 billion hasn't gotten to Haiti and... It, it, it's frustrating to those of us that want to do the right thing. We think we're going to give this money, and where the heck is it going to go? And, and thank you for being Ralph Nader. Yeah, thank you. Um, I must say, Ayn Rand is one of the uh, wonders of the book world. I, I've never been understand her appeal to young people. But uh, then I didn't grow up that way. Uh, I grew up, without knowing it, agreeing with Senator Daniel Webster, which who once said, justice is a great work of human beings on earth. And I know where she was coming from on that. But anyway, uh, I do read conservative books. In fact, I wrote a piece for the Wall Street Journal lately uh, showing the convergence on issues like military and foreign policy and corporate bailouts and the Patriot Act by libertarian uh, people like uh, Paul Rand, uh, Ron Paul, rather, and uh, people on the liberal, progressive side. How to deliver money so it's effective? It has to have recipients. It cannot have intermediary, uh, intermediaries who uh, loot it and steal it. And in a lot of countries, there's no community organizations that we define as community organizations. So it's easy to say, well, we had all this money and it went to Haiti and it was wasted or looted or dissipated or was inefficiently used because, you know, these people don't have, they don't have community organization structure. Show me one culture that doesn't have a cultural 
bond between people who live and work together. And I'll show you Mars. This is a total ignorance about local cultures. They all have their own modes of delivering. Now, they have their criminal elements, like every, every culture has. In, in, you go to the favelas of Rio, and you have some of the most wonderful people you'll ever meet, selfless people, helpful people. You also have criminal syndicates, stealing, extorting. So if you want to deliver, and, and this, this book just deals with domestic policy. It doesn't deal with foreign. They, they strategically deleted that in order to undermine the opposition. Uh, the, if, if you're dealing with delivery, you have, to have, you have to have law enforcement and you have to have an understanding of the various neighborhoods and who are the influentials, who are the leaders, who are the local uh, revered fathers and mothers and so on. And that's the way. Now, the person who's doing it right in Haiti is James Farmer. Not James Farmer. I uh, forgot his first name. Paul Farmer, who many years ago, he's a, a doctor and an a, a PhD in anthropology. And, and does he ever use both? Uh, started an ever-growing clinic in the hills in Haiti. Uh, so now it's really pretty massive. Uh, so he, I haven't spoken to him since the earthquake, but he must be uh, amazed at how far his few millions have gone and uh, how little has been done for those poor people uh, with the, I think, two billion or so, three billion. What happens after an earthquake, all these countries pledge, but they, they, they mostly do not deliver more than a fraction uh, of, their, of their pledge. So we have a lot to learn, uh, and what works is to quickly get the uh, the natural leaders, the existing leaders in the neighborhoods and the, and the communities uh, around the new resources that are coming in. Yes. Thank you again for coming this evening. It's really a great pleasure. Um, uh, it's arguable that corporate America has hijacked both the Republican Party and the Democratic Party, but what's not arguable is that the Republican Party seems to have hijacked the progressive movement right now with the Tea Party, and you just addressed that Fox News may be primarily a good source for how that happened. Um, what, what would you say, what can we do about that? What would you say that needs to be done about that that will be able to take the agenda of the the humanity of our, in our country back to people who are not indirectly fueling the Republican Party. There are some vignettes in the book that address that. And the question is what... The question basically was uh, the Tea Party seemed to be the pulse and, and uh, the Republicans have, in effect, preempted the progressive side of our society and gotten center stage. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Uh, the, well, first of all, I hate to answer it in a general way. The, the answer to your question is in the book. Okay? <laughs> now, here, here, here's the point. Here, here's the point. And I mean it in detail. Now, here's the point. People say, boy, this is naive. Billionaires and super billionaires are going to care for this country. They just care for themselves. And they'll, they'll give big money to a hospital or maybe to an opera house or whatever, but they're never going to get down into this nitty-gritty 
of this dramatic power struggle. That's not what, how they want to spend their elderly years. Beware of the 100% stereotype. A, we've never had more billionaires and mega-billionaires ever. They're popping up all over due to the paper economy, making money from money. If you look at the Forbes 400 riches, about 80% of them uh, are in the paper economy. They're hedge fund people, they're stock market people, banks, etc. So do not stereotype 100%. Maybe you might want to stereotype 99% in your eagerness. All you need is less than 1%. All you need is a tiny handful of multi-billionaires who really know what needs to be resourced and who can do it around the country. The uh, interesting thing that when this book came out in hardback and I had this meeting with Buffett, Buffett told me, you know, Bill Gates and I are trying to get some very rich people around the world to pledge 50% of their money, of their wealth, to good works. And then he said, now we have to figure out what good works are. Well, they announced that, you know, a number of months ago. They're now up to 56 mega billionaires from everything from Carlos Slim in Mexico, the richest of them all, to Europe, uh, China, etc. And they are meeting in dinners to try to figure out what to do with 50% or more of their money. Well, as some of them have admitted to me, they don't have a clue of what to do. They're geniuses at making money, or they're very lucky, or a combination. But they don't have a clue. It's our job to, to get them into our meetings, at whether they're national or local or state or regional, and Baltimore has its share of very rich people, to get them into our meetings so we can suggest how they can cope with the problems in a city like Baltimore in a way that is leveraged, in a way that focuses on justice, in a way that gives backing to many of the existing but frustrated neighborhood and community leaders, and all the way to Annapolis and to Congress. So that's what we have to do. It's really amazing how the, the questions that come up on this book immediately ignore the, the message of the book but they focus on the essence of the book. So in other words, your question focused on why I sweated out to do this book, but it didn't connect with the strategy that is the heart and soul of the book. And that's because we grow up corporate, largely whether we like it or not. It's, we grow up with certain limitations on our horizon. We grow up preempting what is possible, because, you know, that's not practical. That's crazy. These guys are rich. They don't care about people. 100% stereotype? Notice, 100% stereotype. So, look back at history. When Frederick Douglass, the great abolitionist who was a slave and taught himself after he freed himself in the 1840s and 50s, taught himself how to read, write, and became arguably the greatest orator in the United States, once said, power concedes nothing without a demand. Great phrase. I used it in my presidential campaigns. Power concedes nothing 
without a demand. And that's true for everything that you want to change. You have to make the demand. You can't say, oh, it's not going to happen. Uh, you're reflecting discouragement. You can't, uh, that's why the imagination, curiosity, and concentration trilogy are so important. You've got to bust your mind out of the routine acceptance of low expectations for our country and our world. And in the greatest moments in our history, that's exactly what people did. That's exactly what Frederick Douglass did. Yes? Hi, Mr. Nader. Uh, I've been a fan of yours ever since I saw you on Saturday Night Live. Um, um, <laughs> my, uh, I'm glad for that entry, yeah. level. <laughs> my, my, One uh, reason why I did it. <laughs> uh, I told my son that I was coming to see Ralph Nader today, and he said, the Ralph and Nader? And I said, yes. Um, I just wanted to know your thoughts on uh, what's going on with the uh, Consumer Federal Protection Bureau and uh, how Elizabeth Warren's potential nomination is being handled and what that means for us as Americans. Yes. Well, Elizabeth Warren is why we should always be hopeful for new leadership in this country. I mean, she's absolutely spectacular, Harvard Law professor, up from a working family in Oklahoma, went to two, three law schools before she got teaching, before she got to Harvard. And uh, so now she's in the Treasury Department uh, creating this statutory Consumer Financial Reform Bureau, which is going to have a $500 million budget paid for by the banks, believe it or not, because she's under the Federal Reserve. Uh, so she's not going to rely on the Republicans to cut her budget if she gets nominated. The question is, will Obama nominate her? She is easily the most qualified person. She is a communicator's dream. How many of you have heard, seen her on TV? I mean, is this, you know, this, this is what I mean by what's available that we don't know about around the country. And so I visited her a couple months ago, and I said, uh, uh, Mr. Obama has nominated you. He's offered the job to three other people who've turned it down, in part because they know she should get the job. She conceived of the whole agency. And then she was head of the congressional oversight on a lot of the financial shenanigans, a special uh, task force, and did very well there. Uh, but she cross-examined Timothy Geithner, the Treasury Secretary, and he didn't like it. He did not like being cross-examined by somebody who knew more than he did. And he's her boss now, temporarily. So I said to her, uh, are you still interested in the job? She says, in a minute. Look at that. Can you imagine? No bureaucraties. Well, you know, in a minute. So the American banker today has an article saying that she's now the favorite to be nominated or appointed by Obama. But never take anything for granted. If you know any member of the Senate or the House, uh, tell them to put the heat up to get her on that job because she's the only one who has a chance of, of making that bureau work. She knows how to communicate to bankers. She knows how to communicate to the public. She knows where the warts are. She knows what changes have to be made for your credit card and your debit card and your financial uh, instruments like mortgages, etc. And she knows the techniques that are, that are used, the fine print that she always talks about. I mean, like you couldn't create a better person. The fact that Obama 
kept delaying because he thought the Republicans might block her in the Senate. I would have I would have nominated her for widely publicized Senate hearings and had her up against those Republicans like Shelby and McConnell before the election and let the American people decide who's left on the floor at the end of the day. But no, he didn't do it because the bankers hate her. The community bankers like her for obvious reasons. She's not going to favor the banks that are too big to fail. Uh, but the bankers hate her. Geithner doesn't want her. But they've been polling on her. And the polls are coming in very impressive. And I've written Obama, and I've said to him, if you don't think you're going to pay a political penalty for this, if you don't appoint her or nominate her, he could appoint her as recess appointment without going through the Republicans until the end of next year. Or he can nominate her and try to get the Senate uh, to get over 60 votes. I said, if you don't think you're going to pay a political price for this, why don't you just ask me to deliver one, one million names in as short a period as possible in her favor? And then I sent the letter to his political operative, David Plouffe, in the White House. No answer. They never answer letters. This is an Obama-Bush administration, and not just in terms of military and foreign policy. That's the extent to which the two parties have degraded our proper and legitimate expectations for a government of, by, and for the people. Yes? Good evening, Mr. Nader. Um, I agree with your premise that well-resourced movements are the ones that are most likely to succeed, but what do you think that the people of the United States could learn from the revolutions that have been sweeping across the Middle East um, with little to no resources? Well, they can learn that half of democracy is showing up, and we don't show up enough in rallies and marches, and the politicians notice that. And you see, the politicians gauge their people back home as to how far they can push their face in the mud on behalf of their corporate paymasters. And one of the ways they gauge is, oh, there's a big rally in Washington huh, uh, for worker rights. Uh, it's on Saturday. huh? It, it didn't get much press. And what happened Monday morning? Well, the ralliers went back home. They have to go to work. Well, Monday morning is when Congress is, is open, not Saturday. And so they look at, at well, are people marching? Let's see. Were there great rallies after the Great Wall Street crash that unemployed 8 million workers and stole trillions of dollars and enriched the guys at the top and then threw the crippled banks to Washington so we taxpayers had to bail them out? Let's see. Were there rallies and protests all over the country? No. There was one rally. We had rally in the presidential campaign in October in Wall Street. We jammed the whole space before the New York Stock Exchange got no national TV. But what these politicians are saying, their finger to the wind, if people don't even have the energy to show up, then we can do the corporate bidding even more with impunity and get the money to get reelected from them. Now, what was the Tea Party big claim to fame? They actually filled an auditorium with 200 seats when members of Congress went back. And they, and they protested and hurled tough questions and vituperatives. And they got national coverage. They showed up because members of Congress are used to going back and having a lot of empty seats in the school auditorium for their town meetings. And the few people who come are pretty much people who, who want some little 
recovery of their veteran checks that might have been lost or their, their uh, political supporters. They weren't used to conflict. They weren't used to argument. So that's what we can learn. They showed up, and that was their principal resource, wasn't it? Showing up, ever greater, ever greater, ever greater. But uh, there are other things that, that they had going for them, too, in that a, a huge repressed indignation uh, of what their country was controlled by. And um, we, let's face it, we have a significant number of, this, of people in this country who are pretty happy with the way things are economically. And this is what James, uh, John Kenneth Galbraith called the contented classes. And they happen to be the more influential. Uh, But now we have 80% of the people in this country have been losing ground economically since 1973, which was the highest real wage for 80% of the workers in American history. Even though the economy is almost doubled, people have gotten very rich, 80% of the people are now making less in inflation-adjusted terms than they made in 1974. Someone else? Hello, sir. Uh, Welcome to Baltimore. Uh, I wanted to start by saying, uh, being a Generation Xer and uh, MTV Generation, uh, not really having a lot of heroes, uh, that Ralph Nader was one of my heroes growing up, Dr. Benjamin Carson, my parents, Uh, So I wanted to say thank you for coming to Baltimore. Uh, I have a multi-part question for you, though, however. Um, I'm wondering with these administrations, the Bush administration, Obama administration, uh, do they use you as a consultant? Do you find that they fear your simple approach of having to first acknowledge a problem and then confront it in order to even get a result or make a difference? Uh, do you find that they, they fear you? Do they sweep you away? Do they consult you? Uh, second part of my question, being accused of being a conspiracy theorist a little bit, I was wondering how you feel about the news of the last couple of days with uh, Osama bin Laden being captured, killed, and mysteriously slipped off of a ship into the ocean. Uh, how you feel about these things? And Uh, I mean, is there truth to it? Just generally, I'd like to know how you feel about it. And lastly, do you have any advice or any recommendations for alternative reading materials uh, that us as American youth or just Americans in general could partake in, could read to enrich us uh, because we're we're obviously not being uh, fulfilled or uh, getting what we need from Mm -hmm. uh, American literature? Let me me start with that. if you're thinking of publications, the, how many of you have ever heard of the progressive populist? What is incredible compilation twice a month from the prairies of Kansas uh, of all kinds of columns, uh, and, and they actually send it to you on paper. So it's like a newspaper like this, maybe 26 pages with dozens of columns, all kinds of issues. And then, of course, uh, you know, you have the Nation magazine. Uh, there's some good features in uh, various local newspapers uh, that from time to time uh, uh, break new ground. <clears throat> you have uh, a lot of books that are out. I think if you uh, went on commondreams.org or counterpunch.org, you'll, you'll see some of the authors. 
if you listen to Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman, you'll see some of the authors like Jeremy Scahill uh, on, the, on the show who exposed the Blackwater Corporation, uh, among other things. So it's not, it's not hard uh, to do that. I, I read the American Conservative. I think this is legitimate conservative magazine, not a corporatist neocon fascist magazine. Uh, and their cover story in their April issue was the horrible afflictions of Iraq children. We, we've blown that country apart. Don't for a minute believe that we had victory in Iraq. We so contaminated it. Fallujah was a chemical warfare operation. Depleted uranium. The author went into the hospitals. One hospital has 15% serious birth defects. Infant mortality skyrocketing. One infant was born with three heads. Uh, mutations. The picture on the cover is of an Iraqi girl with her face uh, marked. Um, we've blown that country apart. Five million out of 25 million people are refugees uh, in Jordan or Syria or, or, or in Iraq. Uh, we, a million have died at least as a result of our invasion. We stoked the sectarian fires, which can be stoked in any society by an outside inv invader supporting one sect over another. Revenge killings, water contaminated, health, health uh, systems destroyed, food deprived, on and on and on. And it's an American conservative magazine. In the same magazine, they profiled the story about Grover Norquist, who I disagree with on a lot of things. He's anti-war. He's anti-Islamophobia. This is a leading right-wing lobbyist, probably the most powerful in Washington. They also had an article on uh, Smedley Butler, a book on Marine General Smedley Butler, who, who decided that after serving U.S. corporations in Cuba, Central America, China, in the first three decades of the 20th century, that he was, in his own words, a racketeer for capitalism and became a, an anti-war uh, spokesman after he retired. This guy was a double Congressional Medal of Winner honor. And he wrote the book, War is a Racket. And that was reviewed in the book. So you really have to... Uh, ideology is very motivating for people. But if you take it too far, you split yourself off from uh, segments of reality. And you become deluding yourself. And uh, you don't have a grasp of, of reality. That doesn't mean you shouldn't have firm principles. It means that you, you've got to have options for revision. Because nobody knows what everybody knows. Someone else? Is there a, a woman that will ask a question? Let's make this the last question, if you don't mind, because we want to leave time for book signing and book buying. And you can ask Mr. Nader personal questions, too, also um, during the book signing. So you're it. Thank you. I am a woman who was fired from her job in December for refusing to take a mandatory flu shot. And I would like to know, if does the Patriot Act have anything to do with that? I just feel like our, I just look around in our rights, rights that I used to have. I find that we just don't have them anymore. I say, well, where is this? And do I want to be here, really? So can you talk, speak to that? You were fired for what? Refusing to take a mandatory seasonal flu shot. I worked in a hospital, but I had no, I was a, a clerk. I didn't have any patient contact at all. And 
Right. Um, and up until that point, I was there for six and a half years. We were able to uh, choose for ourselves. And I had a note from my doctor, which they accepted in 2009, but in 2010, they changed the policy. Well, see, that, tighter. it's a perfect, by the way, I've got to answer the rest of your question. I didn't answer those questions. And by the way, you should, if you want to get my weekly column online, uh, which you get it free, just uh, sign up at nader.org, nader.org, get the weekly column. Uh, the... The argument for mandatory vaccination is that if you're not vaccinated, you come down with a contagious disease, you can give others contagious disease. But I wouldn't put flu in that category. That's number one. Uh, maybe some of the more ravaging contagious diseases. But the second argument is a new one. And most people are not aware of this. That up until about 20 years ago, the drug companies in this country produced here the ingredients for their drugs. It's now 80% in China and India. They're not subjected to rigorous inspection by the Food and Drug Administration. And we now have a situation where there's not a single plant in this country producing penicillin. And one Indian public health official was heard to say, if China turned off the faucet tomorrow, the pharmaceutical industry would collapse. Well, a lot of other people would collapse, too. So the question is, can we really trust these vaccines now? Can we trust these drugs? Because 115 Americans died recently because a drug given to people who... Uh, it was a, a coagulating drug they were, when they were operated on. The ingredient came from a laboratory in China that was not inspected by the FDA, and it killed them. And the FDA said, we, well, we inspected the wrong laboratory. We had the wrong address. Well, first of all, China doesn't exactly welcome a lot of FDA inspectors. Now, to show you the perfidy, the total lack of decent patriotism, these drug companies grew on the backs of American workers. Massive taxpayer funding for their uh, research drugs from the National Institutes of Health. When they got in trouble, they went to Washington for tax credits, which they still get, even though they're the most profitable industry in the country, except maybe for the oil industry. And, and what, is their, what is their response to all this? We're out of here. We want to make a few more bucks here with 60 cent an hour Chinese workers. And what's our government doing? Sherrod Brown had hearings two years ago, senator from Ohio. Nothing happened. How many times do you hear, government initiates investigation, FBI initiates investigation, nothing happens, because we're not making it happen. We don't spend 1% of our time on our civic and political duties. I guarantee you, if the people in this country spent as much time watching Congress as they spend looking at themselves in the mirror, we'd have a fantastic Congress. So, so you should contact the... Uh, local ACLU office and ask them if there's any remedy that you might have. Uh, there is a, a group called uh, uh, Government Accountability Project, GAP in Washington. They do deal with whistleblowers, but they may have some advice as to what happened to you because they worked in this area for so many years. And uh, ask for someone called Mr. Devine. Tell them I urge that you call. Okay, back to these... <laughs> two questions. The first one dealt with outsider, insider. 
yeah, I, I, after 2000, uh, I became someone who was excluded. Uh, they, they didn't invite me to testify. You don't challenge one or both parties the way we did uh, at the guts with campaigns and lawsuits and battles and uh, toughness and pushing issues on them that they knew they should espouse, but they're too indentured to commercial interests to espouse. And, uh, so that's all right. You know, you can work on the inside, work on the outside. You just uh, have to do it in a different, a different way. Thank you.